Hello and welcome to the Euro What, episode number 91 for the week of August 3rd, 2020. I'm Mike McComb and I'm joined today by Ben Smith. Hey Ben. Hey Mike. We are a pair of Americans trying to make sense of the Eurovision Song Contest. And this week, we'll be talking about the birth of the European Broadcasting Union. How's it going, Ben? Uh, you know, it's good. It's the it's the time of year where I just kind of want to sit in the house anyways. So yes, <laughs> continued circumstances aren't that terrible. Mm-hmm. So, so is it beastly hot in Boston or uh, torrential rain? Well, I mean, as the saying goes, it's not the heat, it's the humidity. Mm. Although we are we are scheduled to potentially get some rain. OK. All right. Yeah, it's been uh, I don't know. It's been Chicago the, uh, <laughs> this summer. So, uh yeah, no, no, nothing too exciting to report, but yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an indoor cat like 12 months of the year, so this mm-hmm. really is uh, mm-hmm. no major change. Well, it's also been great seeing my my European colleagues at work complaining about the heat and then looking up what the temperature is on the on the weather app on my phone and finding out that's like 66 degrees outside. No. Like, <laughs> I would I would love that. That would be great. Not too much happening news-wise, or at least not enough to really kind of justify using up all of the news at this point. So I was just kind of poking around on various websites, as, as you do, and noticed that this year is the EBU's 70th anniversary. Uh, and since it's a oh, number oh that man, ends what, in zero... Were we, supposed, were we supposed to send a gift? Uh, yeah, what is the gift for 70? Like, is that um, platinum? I am checking right now. Are we going with a modern gift or a traditional gift? Is there an actual difference? Uh, I figure once you get up to the, like, <laughs> Good point. Once you get digits, up to, like, the yeah. 70th, like, it's just like, wow. Yeah. Is it platinum is or palladium? Which one do you yeah. go with? <laughs> um, uh, speaking of platinum, it is the platinum anniversary. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, since it is the platinum anniversary and a number that ends in zero, we need to make a big deal about it. Uh, yes. And I thought it might be fun to kind of take a look at the EBU's origin story. It's the parent organization that puts on Eurovision. We should probably learn a little bit about that as, as we mm-hmm. dive into the history of the contest. So Just sort of what act in its youth turned it into the villain it is today? Sure. I wouldn't call it a villain, but uh, I don't know. Your mileage may vary. but <laughs> uh, So, yeah, uh, was, did kind of a deep dive on this one. Th- this episode won't necessarily be a deep dive. It's going to be kind of a Cliff's Notes version of things. But, Ben, do you want to take a guess as to when this story begins? Um, I mean, given that Eurovision dates back to about the mid 50s i want to mm-hmm. say so like i want to i want to guess that like this was not just a random idea that popped into someone's head sometime in like 1954 so i'm guessing probably sometime in in the decade following world war ii someone was like what if music okay well you're very close uh we're gonna be starting in may 27th 1843 uh, <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines music as... Yeah, yeah. I, I admit the date is a little arbitrary, but it'll kind of make sense as we uh, get through this story. So, In, eight, uh, in the 1800s, someone wrote a popular song in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not quite, but uh, here we go. So on May 27th, 1843, Scottish inventor Alexander Bain received his patent for the electric printing telegraph. And uh, this was a device that was kind of the precursor to the fax machine. Yeah, how's that for an intro to a story? Uh, (laughs) We're talking about fax machines, folks. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this was the era of scientific discovery where they're doing a lot of stuff with electricity, working with the telegraph. 
and signaling uh, to other sources. So the term signaling is going to come up quite a bit during this. So what signaling means is transmitting information by gesture, by action, by sound. Semaphore flags. Yep, semaphore was going to be my very first example. Uh, my nemesis, semaphore. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's basically a way to communicate information from a transmitter to a receiver. In a telegraph, that's done with an electric signal that's sent from the transmitter over wires and then received on the other end by a mechanism that usually has some sort of needle that's going to react to the electricity. Uh, and that's indicating that the signal has been received. Bain was the inventor of electric clocks that used electromagnetic impulses to operate the pendulum that uh, was used to keep time in the clocks. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of adapting that technology to send electric impulses to a receiver that would activate pins on a roller that would interact with electrochemically treated paper. So it was kind of like... Fax machine slash rudimentary dot matrix printer. Uh, I was I was expecting that sentence to end with rudimentary player piano, but okay. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's a little bit of the same concept, but the, it would the end result should be a visual display of whatever image is trying to be communicated. To be clear, telegraphy, uh, the the process of sending telegraphs uh, had been around for a while, uh, but it, it involved a ton of infrastructure uh, that was incredibly expensive to build because uh, at, at this point, it was a two-wire system. There was a wire for incoming messages and a wire for outgoing messages. And if you had a telegraph, it would have uh, an incoming and outgoing wire. If you had a second telegraph, it needed its own incoming outgoing wire like you couldn't you could not share resources that way so you couldn't really communicate efficiently because each needle at the at a receiving station would need its own dedicated line now at the same time samuel morse uh was developing his own system of telegraphic messaging uh but rather than an image he was just focusing on the electric impulses that would cause a stylus to mark a uh, piece of paper tape um, and a short input uh, impulse would leave a dot, and a longer one would leave a dash. And there were also other clues that the receiver could receive in the process of a transmission, such as the, the clicking of the needle, which way the needle moved, if it was a dot or a dash. And uh, yeah, Morse was developing that technology in conjunction with figuring out how to do this all on a single, single wire rather than two separate wires. Once that was developed, he went one step further and developed the Morse code with uh, Alfred Vail uh, to assign combinations of dots and dashes to letters and numbers. So this introduced a ton of efficiency uh, to telegraphy. Uh, it was both an audible and written language in a way uh, so that operators could send and receive information, like both what the impulses were sending to the paper tape, but also they could hear it and kind of write stuff down uh, ahead of the message that was going onto the paper. Um, so that, that was speeding up the process. And because of the sparseness of the dot dash system, it wasn't like a steady electrical impulse. It didn't require as much infrastructure uh, to have more messages coming through. So uh, that was a pretty big improvement in telecommunications. Bain noticed that this was a big deal. 
his problem with it was that it was still kind of slow. Uh, and <laughs> yes. There, yeah. As, uh, as someone who has deciphered Morse code many a time. Right. Right. And there's also just a lot of moving parts and operators can only work so quickly. Like, as you just mentioned, it, it takes a while to decipher Morse code and it's being handwritten. And yeah, I mean, you could only go so fast. You, like if you were really good at it, you could probably get to about 40 words per minute, um, which, which, whatever nothing uh, nothing to sneeze at you're right right bain tried to develop a system that used a combination of chemical coloring and punch tape and he was able to develop a system that could spit out messages at about 300 words per minute um but the problem with it is it was on morse's technology and like kind of violated some of his patents so morse is just like uh, no, we're, we're going to injunction that. And so we were, we were stuck with the 40 words per minute uh, method for a while. Other technological issues were kind of cropping up as well uh, at this point. Um, in 1850, an underwater cable was installed uh, connecting the UK and France. Telegraphs were able to go from the island to the mainland. Yay! Yeah, and a transatlantic cable was installed in 1858. So also Yay. The thing is, the U.S. had their own telegraph equipment and procedures and protocols. The U.K. had their own systems and technology and devices and protocols. And so did France. And so did Switzerland. And so did Prussia. And so did everybody. So So did everybody, because languages are different. And also, we're all just figuring out how to use the new technology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and everybody's just going to build it. However, the person in a way that works knows for how them. to build it. Right. So that means anytime a message has to cross a border, it has to get converted from one system to another, usually by hand at many parts of the transmission. So it's just adding a whole bunch of inefficiency to the process. Moving ahead a little bit, what do you know about Napoleon the third? That he was the third Napoleon. End of end of facts. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Are you familiar with uh, Napoleon One or Napoleon Two? Um, one of them was the one that we banished to Elba, but then he came back. Right. Uh, yes, that was Napoleon the First, uh, the Waterloo One, as I have in my notes. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah, he uh, Napoleon the Third was the nephew of Napoleon the First, and Napoleon the Second was the son of Napoleon the First, uh, who was Emperor of the French for about two weeks uh, when he was four years old. Uh, I'm just now picturing a series of, of, <laughs> of direct-to-video movies that are a ripoff of the Beethoven series called Napoleon the Third. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this one's not as far fetched, but um, okay. yeah, the, the thing the thing with Napoleon the Second, like I, I just thought that this was funny coming up in the research was uh, Napoleon the First was kind of on his way out, and uh, he was trying to abdicate the throne but keep keep everything in the family. So he's like, oh, my my son can take over, uh, and yeah, but like I said, his son was four at the time, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, French government wasn't going for it. Uh, they really didn't want to have any business with the Bonapartes uh, at this point, but especially not a four-year-old. So, uh, but yeah, for a two-week period, there was this kind of like a uh, dispute, uh, I guess would be the best way to describe it. Uh, and yeah, so he was kind of, Napoleon II was kind of emperor, kind of not. Uh, it, it was kind of a thing. Moving on to Napoleon III. Louis Napoleon Bonaparte was elected president of France in 1848. And he was expected to kind of toe the party line uh, in France. He was kind of, the intention was that he was 
not a puppet candidate, but somebody that the uh, ruling party would be able to easily manipulate and just be like, oh, this is a policy we want. We'll just tell him that this is what we're going to do, and then he's going to do it. Napoleon had his own idea. <laughs> he was in constant conflict with the National Assembly, and he tried to amend the French Constitution to allow him to seek re-election. Uh, at this point, presidents of France were only allowed a single term, uh, and it was his focus to kind of overrule that. Um, and like in the course of doing that, he uh, uh, managed to establish like I think it was 150 newspapers that were like anti-parliamentary mouthpieces basically to like just try to try to completely undermine the national assembly and like seize more power that is an impressive number of of newspapers to start on the other hand that's just sort of like spinning up a bunch of wordpress blogs right right but i mean you figure that like with physical media it's like oh man it, could, could you imagine that anybody is, trying to oh, launch 150 yeah, that, that newspapers is, today yeah yeah but when that didn't work uh, he staged a coup in December 1851. He was still in power at this point. He so was this still was in power, coup. but you know what? Yeah, it was a coup on himself. And this also wasn't the first time that he tried to stage a coup. It's a it was the first time or maybe first successful time when he was president. But in, in leading up to his presidency, he uh, tried to establish coups like two or three times. This eventually forced the issue of presidential terms, and the new constitution ended up allowing for a 10-year term, expanded powers for the presidency, no term limits. And a song contest every year amongst nations. We'll get to that. But okay. <laughs> uh, but in 1852, he was just like, you know, this 10-year thing is just not going to work for me. Why don't we just call me emperor? So he became Napoleon III. Although that sounds like kind of a malevolent way of gaining power, uh, he was a major proponent of modernizing France. He expanded the national railway system. Uh, he pushed for improving agriculture and uh, uh, increasing access to education for women. And he was also big on communications. I mean, like he started 150 newspapers to try to seize power. <laughs> so he's he's definitely a calm studies type guy. Mm -hmm. uh, when Paris was redesigning their sewer system, uh, telegraph cable installation was a major part of that plan. So, like, he was, like, updating all the infrastructure, making sure the communication systems were working, making sure that the communication systems were nationalized. So that's pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets us back to the issue of international communication methods being extra messy. Uh, because even though it's, like, working great in France, once you get to the French border, it's all kind of chaos again. Uh, so in the spring of 1865, he calls a conference with delegates from 20 cities, countries, kingdoms, empires, to just kind of hash out all of these issues like equipment standards, tariffs, procedures, etc. What wasn't on the table, though, was politics. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, this this conference <laughs> is not a political Once again, contest, just me at every so, turn. Yeah. What wasn't on the table, though? A global song contest between nations to figure out who could write the catchiest three-minute bop. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this meeting was the birth of the International Telegraph Union, uh, which is also known as the ITU. And coming out of this meeting was the international adoption of Morse code uh, and a mechanism for technology experts to work together, even if the countries they represent are in conflict. Uh, there was a second meeting of the ITU that was held three years later in Vienna, uh, with a few more countries at the table, but again, there was no politics. It was just about the communications process. 
So discussions were about addressing technology updates, administrative issues, and moving the ITU headquarters to Bern, Switzerland. Um, and as a point of reference, the ITU still exists today, and it's under the umbrella of the United Nations, but the T, instead of standing for telegraph, stands for telecommunication. So it's kind of a long-lasting effect. Uh, and so with uh, Napoleon III, he was also really into national like na- nationalist movements. Uh, he was instrumental in the unification of Italy. Uh, he helped Romania kind of emerge as a country following the Crimean War. Um, he was about expanding the French Empire, but that's kind of where he overplayed his hand. Uh, he was involved in the whole Cinco de Mayo uh, debacle uh, in Mexico, and uh, yeah, and ended up losing his uh, seat of power uh, following the defeat of the French in the Franco-Prussian War. So not a not a hundred percent record, but you know, yeah, like he wins, he, some, he some, loses some. Yeah, yeah, he he did some things. At this point, we know we can send text and some approximation of images over wires. Uh, so and we have a standard, which means that it will probably get there slightly more efficiently. Right, right. So the next thing to look at would be audio, which happens officially in 1876 when the patent for the telephone is issued. Uh, the ITU is starting to meet regularly at this point, and issues in telephony Uh, start appearing on the agenda in 1885. So this organization uh, is now 20 20 years in existence and really taking on some very tough subjects. Because Uh, my brain is broken because of the pandemic, I'm picturing them all on a Zoom call and it's amusing me immensely. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Even though... There was no such thing as a Zoom call back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's waving for no good reason. Uh- <laughs> Everyone is currently rolling in their graves right now at my suggestion of this. Yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> this was the future. What have, what have we done? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, when it came to phone calls, like, all, all that they were able to figure out at first was just, like, the fee structure. Uh, a phone call charge was based on five-minute increments, and a maximum call length was 10 minutes if somebody else needed to use the line. Um, call waiting would not be introduced for another century, so uh, I don't know how many of these people had uh, older siblings that they had to fight over the phone with. But <laughs> uh, but this does bring up other innovation questions, such as what if you need to communicate with someone who doesn't have access to a wired connection, such as a ship captain? That's what a lighthouse is for, Mike. I guess you could do Morse code with the light, but... With the big uh, lamp. Yeah, uh, that that seems like a tough way to go about it, especially if you're like only trying to communicate to one ship and you're just like, everybody else in the harbor, don't pay attention to this. So. Do not run yourselves into the rocks. I need yeah. to talk to Jim. Yes, exactly. Like You are on your own. We will get into that issue shortly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, are, are you familiar with David Edward Hughes? That name is ringing a bell. Okay. Well, David Edward Hughes uh, split his time between Britain and the U.S. uh, implementing telegraph printing technology. Uh, He also designed the first microphone, uh, and it used uh, iron nails, a battery, and a galvanometer, uh, which is a device that measures small electric currents. And in the course of developing this microphone technology, he stumbled upon what he called an extra current, uh, and it caused his mechanism to trigger. Uh, And through a series of experiments, he was able to trigger these same reactions between devices that were about 500 yards from one another. So like 1500 feet, like not not a short distance. 
He gave a demo at the Royal Society in 1880, which was kind of the Shark Tank Dragon's Den of its day. (laughs) Um, And the response was mixed. Uh, Some thought it was a demo of electromagnetic induction rather than over-the-air transmission. I can't believe he would step to that. But, uh, (laughs) um, But Hughes wasn't a physicist by trade. Um, so he was just kind of like, okie dokie, I'm done here. Thank you for your time. Like he did, he did not press the issue at all. Um, but it turns out that Hughes was right in what he was presenting and in his findings. And, uh, Heinrich Hertz, uh, who developed the proof of the existence of radio waves, based some of his proof on Hughes's work. So like this, this was a big deal. And, um, yeah, if you've ever put together a crystal radio detector, it's this, that's the same kind of device that Hughes was demonstrating. And yeah, now the, uh, Royal Society has an award called the Hughes Medal, uh, which is given to people who, like, make important discoveries in the realm of physics. So good on you, Hughes. Uh, the shark spot it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, now radio waves are known to be a thing. And work continued through the 1890s on how to manipulate them. And there are a lot of notable names that uh, come up uh, in this research. So uh, Nikola Tesla, uh, he designed a radio that allowed for controlling propellers on a boat. Um, So yeah, get that RC boat action going. Uh, Jagadish Chandra Bose uh, was able to demonstrate the ability for electromagnetic waves to go through walls. And as part of his demo, uh, he was able to ring a bell uh, remotely, uh, and he was also able to explode some gunpowder. So I'm calling that the first pyrotechnic display. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So this is a very important discovery uh, in terms of Eurovision, uh, I would argue. Um, (laughs) uh, And then uh, Alexander Stepanovich Popov, Uh, He designed a radio in 1895 that he was able to use to transmit signals between buildings in St. Petersburg, Russia, and that led to the development of ship-to-shore communications. So uh, now we don't have to worry about uh, playing plinky lights with the lighthouse. Uh, they, they, They could actually not necessarily talk to one another, but communicate in a way that did not require wires. But the biggest name to come out of this era uh, was Guglielmo Marconi. Um, are, are you familiar with Marconi? Uh, if only from the lyrics of Starships, We Built This City. <laughs> I was not expecting that response. Um... <laughs> My brain is organized real weird, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's. And, it's and like, helpful. honestly, yeah. the pandemic is just boiling it down to a fine gastric. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, Marconi, he was building on the work of uh, the others that were previously mentioned, and he discovered that a, greatest, a greater distance in transmission can be achieved by increasing the height of the antenna that you're using, and also grounding the transmitter and the receiver. So you're kind of reducing the amount of electricalness that needs to happen. I, I sound like a real expert right now, uh, yeah. but but this yeah, is it, how it's the just, science works. Yes, yeah, the science does the thing. Basically, it's making it more efficient and allowing the waves to travel a shorter distance because of angles. And it, this also isn't great in a podcast format because I'm doing a lot of stuff with my hands right oh, yeah, now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just—I ex- can totally tell yeah. that you're doing 
lots of hand gestures to explain this. But yes, yes, yes a lot of hand over hand going like, you know. Uh. <laughs> I, I am an engineer. I learned about this in a physics class at some point. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, af- after these tweets that Marconi uh, implemented, uh, he was able to get a signal over hills, uh, which was a big deal, and uh, able to s- transmit to a receiver that was two miles away, um, which is a pretty big distance. Uh, the British government offered to help with the research and figure out how to expand the distance uh, of these transmissions. And uh, yeah, they were gradually able to expand the range. And in December 1902, they were able to do the first transatlantic transmission, which was from a station in, uh, I believe it was Newfoundland, Canada, to uh to europe it was a really dodgy transmission i'm sure it was just like every other vowel coming <laughs> coming through but but they were able to do it and demonstrate it, that it could that, be yeah. done yeah and the fo- the next month they tried again this time it was uh teddy roosevelt giving king edward the seventh of uh england a howdy um <laughs> uh but yeah but i mean the technology was still very shaky very inconsistent um Businesses were starting to pop up in like 1907 to offer like radio telegraph service, but it was still really dodgy. It was just like, oh, your message got sent. And it's like, did it? It's like, well, we don't know. Like, your <laughs> just, message just, got sent. Please pay me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but the good news is by this point, uh, there was a scientist in Canada uh, named Aubrey Fassenden, uh, and he stumbled upon two-way wireless communication at this point. So... As that's getting developed and is becoming less dodgy, uh, at least now both the sender and the receiver could communicate. What, what was that? Hello? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> the things that we don't talk about about some of the first radio transmissions is that it was all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, of course, this kind of becomes awkward when, say, Prince Henry of Prussia is on his boat and he wants to send a thank you note to, I don't know, Teddy Roosevelt for a recent visit. Uh, The technology is still iffy, uh, but just like with the telegraph, there's nothing uniform about the equipment that's being used. So like the Prussian equipment is going to be completely different from the equipment in the United States. The message gets to the U.S. receiver and they're just like, I don't know what this is. I think it's from Prussia, but it does not work with any of our systems and it's also trying to go to the president uh we're just not going to pass this message along um which isn't really great when it's between heads of state but you know uh uh so yeah uh there's nothing uniform about the equipment everybody's working off of their own local standards it's the same problem so a preliminary radio conference was held in berlin in 1903 to plan for the international radio telegraph conference in 1906 This one was kind of a side project of the ITU, and the conference was used to establish uh, international radio regulations. Uh, For example, there wasn't a uniform way for ships to indicate they were in distress. Uh, Some used this system called the CQD system, where CQ uh, was meant to convey, like, this is a general call, D standing for distress. Other users might have been using Germany's system, which was uh, the dot 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 dash 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 dot 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 system. We know the system as SOS. Um, do you know what SOS stands for? Oh man, I to- uh, I do and I don't. Remind me. Uh, it doesn't stand for anything. Uh, <laughs> okay. I mean, a lot of people interpret it as like save our ship, uh, 
That's uh, there we go. That's what my brain was like. Yeah, I was like save or something. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, that makes sense. But it really, it's a coincidence. Uh, mm-hmm. S just happens to be the Morse code for dot dot dot. Uh, dash 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 just happens to be O. And yeah, it was just intended as a system just to be like, oh, this is a way that you can clearly send like dot 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 dash 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 dot 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 dash dash. Yeah, it's a very clear. It's a very clear pattern. Right. And uh, it's also like the the string of letters SOS doesn't really start any words, at least in English. Um, like I, I checked last night on like dictionary.com and I think also on Merriam-Webster.com uh, like what words start with SOS. And there was like one music term from like old Italian that started with that term. It's like, I don't think a ship captain's going to be using that all that much. So um, so yeah, it's it's a clear way of uh indicating that there's trouble what was was that music term sostenuto i believe it was yes okay all right uh, <laughs> did you just look that up or did you know that <laughs> uh i i did not know that but i but i have access to powerful dictionary tools mm, okay i was just like what are the words that that, yeah. end, that start sos and have any number of letters afterwards so, sostenuto is is like the the big one yeah like it was it was that and then like a variation of that uh where it's like sostenuto hyphen allegro or something i don't know <laughs> so yeah um, most of the terms that are out here are all foreign things that are not common at all in the in the english language right right so uh all of this was approved uh at the conference but the guidelines weren't really implemented with any speed it's not that they lacked teeth it's just like eh, there was just other other stuff to do at this point we'll, we'll get around to it at some point this is a great idea Right, yeah. Um, But this becomes a real problem in 1912 when the Titanic needs to send out a distress call. There is audio available of the distress call that the Titanic sent out, and it included both the CQD system and the SOS system. So it was like signaling out CQD, then it signaled out SOS, which, I mean, sure, you want to hedge your bets, but... If you're in an emergency situation, you really shouldn't be operating under two protocols at the same time, particularly when it's like, no, one of these protocols like is supposed to be the international standard. Uh, but then there were other issues as well, where like it wasn't common practice for people to monitor the channels overnight because it's sleepy time. And there wasn't like a designated channel to send distress signals on. So like you could be on, and I'm not sure how the numbering works on this, but you could be on like channel two sending out your distress signal. But if the people monitoring are on channel four, they're not necessarily going to catch the message. So it was fascinating to see just how big of an event the Titanic (laughs) was uh, in terms of communications and just how, how much, overhaul happened as a result of that event which uh i don't know if that's necessarily taught stateside or if it wasn't as much of an impact stateside but it it seems like it it reverberated through uh things on the european side basically what this gets down to is like best practices are a baseline they shouldn't be a goal and uh following this disaster new guidelines to address the issues came into play and they were actually adopted and implemented like that that was the big lesson here it's like oh okay we've got an international standard now let's use the international standard world war 1 happened there wasn't too much activity on the itu front uh with that but we're now in the 1920s radio's on its way up um the telegraph is pretty much at the end of its product life cycle um mm-hmm. and itu 
isn't all that interested in continuing to develop regulations for Telegraph. Uh, there isn't really, there's nothing new to talk about with that subject. Radio is now advancing much faster than the Telegraph did. And television may be on the horizon. Like the research is definitely happening at this point. So the ITU is fine with handling the technical requirements and figuring out all of those aspects of uh, communications technology. But they're having a tough enough time just keeping up with how, how quickly it's advancing. And they really don't want to get into the content side of broadcasting. Uh, I mean, broadcasting wasn't an issue with Telegraph because you're not uh, you're not having like a 43 country contest uh, getting mm-hmm. tapped out by uh, Samuel Morse. A new organization needs to step in. And that's giving us the birth of the International Broadcasting Union, which is also known as the Union Internationale Radiophonie, or the UIR. Uh, thank you, France. Um, (laughs) every time every time yeah yeah um except for itu which i find funny because that probably should have been union telegraphie international or or something like that so the main problem in play was that technology was more or less sorted but the content issues were all over the place um specifically like every broadcaster was kind of on top of every other broadcaster like there wasn't anything controlling the airspace like we knew how the radio waves could work and now everybody's just like i want to use the radio waves and it would be like if minneapolis and st paul both had a radio station on 98.7 and just the crashing of radio waves that would be happening in that situation and like this isn't necessarily an issue if like you're in the middle of France or the middle of Spain or the westernmost part of Portugal or the southernmost part of Italy where you're not going to be interacting really you're only going to be interacting with the water or your your countrymen around you. Uh but if you're in like a place like Belgium like you're just kind of nestled oh, between Belgium. Well yeah, but you're just nestled <laughs> between everybody or like switzerland yep. where you're just like right there in the middle and everybody's it's right there uh, yeah so and everybody's being so loud yeah yeah the uir uh introduces protocols to kind of mitigate all of the overlapping broadcasting and getting all of these broadcasters because broadcasting is new at this point instilling a sense of cooperation resource sharing uh that sort of thing. I mean, the, the the UIR was, they just wanted to like, just make sure that everybody's kind of working together and working towards this goal. And one of the initiatives that came out of that was something called the Concerts Europeans. I was about to joke that there was a music contest and I may have been right that time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Getting there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so according to research by uh, Morton Mickelson and uh, Suzanne Lomers, uh, these were radio broadcasts that took place uh, between 1931 and 1939. Each edition of these concerts uh, was produced by uh, one of the member national broadcasters in the UIR. And uh, they, were, they were produced by the broadcaster and then shared with all of the other UIR members. Uh, the host broadcaster was encouraged to focus on the performance quality rather than the content quality. Like, they were really trying to test the broadcasting system. And voiceless audio, so, like, mu- music in particular, uh, transmits with less interference than uh, audio with layers and voices and, and that sort of thing. So, in the production of these concerts, like, they would 
uh, they wouldn't necessarily stick to like the most highbrow music. Like they would introduce like folk traditions, and there would be like vocals uh, in the performances. It wouldn't necessarily be pop music, but it would be more accessible music than like the highest brow classic what what we would probably consider like Mm -hmm. classical music these days right but Um, they were sort of using it almost as a platform to test the the broadcast itself as 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 well as entertain theoretically right correct yeah okay so sort of like how when they were figuring out how to encode the mp3 they really worked with suzanne vega with a, with a, one particular Susanna Vega song to under to make sure that MP3 could correctly encode the human voice and capture the warmth of her acapella performance. Oh, I I did not hear about that. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, like th- this this sounds very similar to that that kind of project. And I mean, the fact that this is also like rotating broadcasters and it's bringing in traditions from the country that those broadcasters are in. Like this is definitely a proto Eurovision mechanism okay um, but yeah uh, but yeah no so uh tom's diner of all songs uh, right is, is why she is the mother of the mp3 because that song is very simple and very clear huh and so around yeah in, in like 2000 ish when they were trying to improve the mp3 algorithm uh the the scientist who was working on that was trying to figure out okay if i can figure out a way to compress this track without diminishing all of its wonderful qualities it'll work with anything Oh, this is so cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, she is, yeah she's, that's why she's, yeah, she's jokingly called the mother of the MP3. Wow, I never knew that. Oh, learning so much stuff uh, through, through this. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, what's really interesting about this whole, like, Concerts Europeans and the UIR in general is there's just not a lot of info about any of it. And it most likely has to do with World War II. Uh, I was about to say, is this like a Weimar Germany situation? uh yeah let's go with that but but just sort of like we had notes but then there was a war and now we don't have notes yeah i mean the uir was headquartered in brussels uh which meant that it was in belgium when germany invaded in 1940 and the uir was supposed to be a non-government organization it's again no politics uh and tried to evacuate to geneva uh, but then Germany was all LOL, ja, nein, sie wollen bitte in Brussels. And um, yeah, by 1941, UIR operations were fully under Nazi control. And the service was being used to monitor radioactivity of the Allied forces for the remainder of the war. Not part of the mission statement. Yeah, so when the war ended, Europe's map had yet another massive reset uh, television was in the offing, and cooperation between the broadcasters within like this newly reformed continent uh, was going to need some sort of organizing body. Uh, just thinking about the just thinking about the map for a second and how mm-hmm. that went through a whole shift. So there is a building in Boston. Uh, so the the Christian Scientists have a history in New England, in particular in Boston. They have mm-hmm. they have the Christian Science Center located in downtown Boston, and one of the things they have there is the Maparium, which mm-hmm. was built in in the mid thirties. And it is a large, three-story tall stained glass globe. Huh. And it's super cool, and it has, like, it has like a light show, and it'll light up to show certain areas, and there's some cool properties where, like, if you, like, if you stand in the middle, you can hear people whispering on either side because it's a sphere. Uh, but anyways, uh, the stained glass, like, the, the original intent was that they were going to keep that up to date with the map of the world, and then World War II happened, mm. and also upkeep was very expensive, 
So the map reflects the world as of like 1934. Oh, interesting. It is like a real fun tourist attraction. You can go see it for like six bucks. All right. Uh, and like the whole story behind of why it, why it exists as a concept is that when the Christian Science Monitor wanted to build a headquarters, mm-hmm. uh, they sent the architect who had not built any sort of press headquarters at the time down to New York to look at the whatever the model for the the paper in Superman was, the, which of course was the Daily Planet. And they had like a big globe in their lobby. And he okay. came back and was like, I've got a plan. Ah. And that's why there's now a stained glass globe that's massively out of date in the middle of downtown Boston. So the UIR, like it still technically existed at this point, um, but like nobody was going to trust this organization. Um, and uh, yeah, and so the newly formed USSR like wanted to form some sort of new international broadcasting organization. The proposal that they came up with would be, all right, we'll have an organization where like all the all the member countries get a vote, but then the individual member states also get a vote, uh, even if they're in the umbrella of another country. So, like, USSR would get a vote, but so would Belarus and Ukraine and all these other, like, new USSR acquisitions. <laughs> Everyone would get a vote, but also we would get 14 additional votes. Right. Uh, and France was kind of on board with this because they uh, had a couple of uh, territories in Northern Africa that would have been part of this policy. <laughs> France was like, on board because of colonialism. Yeah, yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Like, I, mean, we'd only get, like, I mean, it would only be like four or five extra votes for them, but like it's it's more than one. And yeah, the BBC was not on board with this at all because it's just like, uh, we would have one vote. This is not <laughs> this this is not good for the home team so we did um, not plan our colonies well enough yeah yeah well and and also everybody was getting decolonized after the war um yep so yeah and along with that like the relationship with the ussr was already troubled for non-voting reason <laughs> non-voting reasons <laughs> in this imaginary organization so but again the itu doesn't really care one way or the other because this is a broadcasting issue, not a technology issue. And they're just like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. Uh, they were hosting the World Radio Conference in uh, in Atlantic City in 1947. And uh, both the UIR zombie that was still around um, and the International Radio and Television Organization, which is what uh, USSR and uh, France were trying to put together, uh they both wanted to go to this conference, and they both wanted to be able to vote. But ITU is just like, nah, you need to figure your stuff out. Uh, you can come and watch, but yeah, you're not you're not going to have any voting privileges if anything comes to the floor. The new organizations were not really on board with that. I did find documents uh, from like the agenda, and I don't know if it was necessarily minutes, but a summary of what uh, was going down at the conference, uh, trying to see if there's any hot goss on uh, <laughs> what what happened with with this blowout, but. Um, yeah, unless because there that's, was that's where we hit all the that's where we hit all the hot gossip in, in history is in the is in meeting minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, unless it was in a coded uh, shaded region of some amplitude graph, I did not find anything. And like it's like a five hundred page document, so it's just like oh, this this <laughs> like it needs to be like pulled out in a like pull quote or bullet point, or I'm just gonna skip past it. So uh, no hot goss, unfortunately, but. Lots of drawings, so, uh, but nothing to contextualize the drama. Um, so anyway, the uh, OIRT, which is the uh, French version of International Radio and Television Organization, thank you, France, uh, picks up the <laughs> lease on the office space in Brussels that the UIR used to hold. 
Uh, but by now the Cold War is like starting to happen and uh, like y- Europe's splitting apart, basically. Uh, OIRT ends up moving to Prague and becomes the broadcasting organization for the Eastern Bloc and a handful of other countries outside of Europe. Uh, Western Europe still needs an organization. Decolonization's happening. Vote And the voting issues that the UK uh, was iffy about, they're pretty much resolved at this point. Uh, France has dropped out of the OIRT and it's like, all right, we'll, we'll just have our one vote instead of five votes. And this becomes the birth of the European Broadcasting Union. Yeah, and it forms officially in 1950. Uh, it'll be another six years before the first Eurovision Song Contest, uh, but so many of the elements that we recognize today are part of this long prehistory. Today and is already playing. Yeah, I mean, the, the contest has seen iterations of technological growth uh, with like the ways the scores have been presented. Like it's gone from phone calls into the studio to satellite presentations. Uh, and uh, the way that voting happens, like there's now televoting and uh, voting by text. And maybe someday they'll be able to figure out a way to securely do an internet vote. Uh, telecommunication standards were developed in a space intentionally devoid of politics, even though politics are ha- are happening outside of that sphere. Like the space is supposed to be a like non-governmental zone. Eurovision is not a political contest. Right. Drink. Drink. And yeah, and then it, there's content sharing among nations and uh, it's allowing for the sharing of cultures from whatever organization is hosting uh, those events. And it's all in the context of music. And some of the relationships that have been established all the way back to the conference in France in 1865 uh, and like Napoleon III's um, involvement in the European scene. Like we still see those relationships play on the scoreboard. So, <laughs> and of course, the most important contribution from Bose, pyrotechnics. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that that's kind of the Cliff's Notes version of the history of how the EBU came about. Um, yeah, originally I was going to try to get this to go all the way to like the very first Eurovision Song Contest, but the bridge to that point would have added at least another hour to this episode. So that might be its own separate I was about, episode. I was about to say, like, that's, <laughs> when, when you proposed this topic to me, I was like, oh cool, we're going to talk about the early years of mm. Eurovision, but no, you were, you were talking about the early years of yeah. radio. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's like, I think, I think it is interesting to like just learn how like these technology patterns reverberate through history and and like learning from those different processes because like the the era of the telegraph was about 60 years and then the era of radio only was about 30 years and then tv development was like 15 years so it's like the, the cycles are like moving faster as we're learning more which i think is which i think is fascinating and just these like just interesting parallels that pop up and and i get to learn science stuff like <laughs> i didn't i didn't have one of those radio kits as a kid now i kind of want to get one so <laughs> Oh, and yeah, and then like the, just the whole like split of OIRT uh, from the rest mm-hmm. of the EBU. That one's definitely going to come up again uh, 
in the context of another episode because there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that uh eastern europe did uh mm-hmm. in during the cold war that is eurovision adjacent um but that well, that just, that will be for yeah. another episode <laughs> yeah and like just thinking about how like you just mentioned how the various technologies like each of their sort of heyday is sort of like half the one that came before that's very moore's law that's very like mm-hmm. like moore's law is that like on a circuit the the number of transistors in like a dense integrated circuit will double about every two years right so it, like we get we get faster and faster yeah it can be exciting to see what what happens 70 years from now like well <laughs> it's not gonna be quibby we tried that didn't work oh oh yeah yeah maybe, maybe we need to pitch quibby just be like hey we could do these like eight minute episodes about like random european history so <laughs> also all of them are secretly about eurovision what's eurovision don't ask yeah yeah <laughs> thank you for the money quibby we'll, we'll definitely turn the yeah. series in yeah and not just take the money and run mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> gonna get us a pitch meeting mike do it all right so while you're working on that i think that's going to do it for this episode of the euro what uh, thank you for listening the euro what podcast is hosted by mike mccomb that's me and ben smith that's me you can find us on our website at eurowhat.com and on social media at eurowhat. Uh, you can also check out our show notes on our website uh, with links to the full bibliography of all of this research. You can subscribe to the Eurowhat on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast app of your choice. When you subscribe, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. Uh, it helps other Eurovision fans find us. We'll be back in two weeks to try to make sense of what's new in Eurovision.